Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Great. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 13 to 20. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or thick figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And I'll go ahead and pray for Mafia in the talk today. God, we thank you for these words from your son, Jesus. We thank you that you don't just leave us to our own sinful devices, Lord, but you step into our lives to guide us and to warn us and to reveal the narrow gate to us because you love us that much. And we thank you that you want the best for us, God, that you do want us to bear good fruit. And we thank you for Mafi's heart for you, Lord, um, just how you've softened him and just all that you've been teaching him in his preparations for today, God. I pray that your spirit would speak through Mafi today, that you'd guide him to the right thoughts and words and into your joy as he shares with us. And I pray that we would have receptive hearts as well to be encouraged and awakened for the sake of your kingdom. We love you, God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kelsey. Appreciate that. Guys, uh, good afternoon or good evening if you look outside. It's quite dark. This is our seventh out of eight weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. And today's talk isn't overly popular at all. And it's, it's absolutely not PC. And it's not a PC part of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I guess if, if a church brought in a guest speaker um, for a Sunday, they probably would not be given Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And perhaps these aren't the, the kind of words like live, laugh, love that you'll find on stickers on the walls of houses. And you'll probably not find these words tattooed on the Christians either. It's simply not popular, I guess. There's a modern myth that holds true that tolerance consists of neutrality. It's one of the most deeply embedded assumptions of a society committed to relativism. The the tolerant person occupies a neutral ground, a, a place of complete impartiality, where each person is permitted to decide for themselves. So no no judgments are allowed, no forcing personal views. Each and every person takes a neutral posture towards another's convictions. This approach is is super popular with with postmodernists, I guess the the radical skeptics whose whose, uh, ideas command respect in universities today. And their rallying cry is there's there's absolutely no truth, there's no absolute truth. And it's often followed by an appeal for tolerance. The problem with the claim that there's no truth is that the claim in and of itself is a truth claim. It's an absolute standard. But the problem with tolerance and neutrality 
is that it's a lovely idea in theory, sure. Whether we, but whether we like it or not, we're, we're not totally impartial. We saw last week the, the reference in Steve's talk to Dawkins being cancelled at Trinity earlier this year because of a conviction that he held that was exclusive and it could have offended. And so it is here with the Sermon on the Mount. Here we are today with some incredibly exclusive claims of Jesus, which are not popular in the society we live in, but yet they cannot be glossed over. So as per last week's talk, we need to be discerning of our own hearts first, but also know the importance to be discerning the attitudes and the motivations of others. So Jesus is incredibly clear cut in his teaching. He's, he's uncompromising with the world. He, he refutes the ideas that there's many roads going many ways, all of which reaches God. And through these specific sets of teachings, Jesus sets before us a great alternative. So from our time in Matthew 6 and 7, we see that Jesus has given us the, the choice of two treasures of which to lay up, treasures on earth or treasures in heaven. He continues with two masters. You'll serve one of them. Which will it be? Money, materialism, wealth, or is it going to be God? But it doesn't stop there. He shows us two ambitions. Will we throw our trust in clothing, material goods, or will we throw it on God? Which will we seek after? And so today, in the very same vein of choice, Jesus teaches his followers that there's two ways, there's two crowds, there's two destinations, and there's two gates. And after these exclusive statements, he says these words, watch out for false prophets. So in, in, the, in the light of the, the danger of and the presence of false prophets described as ferocious wolves, what are the contrasts here that Jesus identifies? You see in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. So the, the first one is there's two ways. There's a broad way and there's a narrow way. The broad road is the easy road. And in Greek, it literally means open. In other words, it's a road with plenty of room, nothing to define, nothing to cramp your style. Uh, I believe what you like, do what you like type of road. One with no boundaries, anything goes. And this is ultimately the road of pop culture. It's a, it's a road, it's the way of the world, a world in which Christ isn't king, but self is. And on this road, everybody, everybody minds their own business. They do their own thing uh, with no one to interfere because everyone's way seems right to them. Its disposition has a gentle downhill slope where it's easy to idle along and there's no resistance whatsoever. And so by comparison, narrow is the way that's described as hard. And in contrast, it's a road that's fenced in, its boundaries marked with a clearly defined path. The narrowness is because of divine revelation. The path the follower of Jesus walks along is one that's defined by God's revealed word, a life lived in submission under the authority and the influence of God as revealed by scripture. And this isn't so much seeking to understand God's words, but instead of seeking to stand under God's word. And it's not overly popular. It's super costly to, listen to ourselves. It's a narrow road. And so you've got the two roads. You've got the two crowds. You have the majority crowd and you have the minority crowd. The broad road is always busy. There's lots of hustle. There's lots of bustle. It's hosting the majority of people. And so as followers of Jesus, we refer to this crowd as the non-Christians. Those who who haven't found or those who aren't following the way or those that have but have actively rejected it. There's others that have initially accepted it, but when the pressures and the trials of the world come knocking, they shrink back. 
an uncompromised, I guess, slide. Um, and, per and perhaps this was you at a time and, and you're finding yourself trundling along, just being shaped and conformed to the pattern of the world around you. Maybe this sounds familiar to your own heart. I want to encourage you right now and I want you to know that it's not too late. To all that hear this message, it is not too late. Be conscious of where it leads. And I encourage you, consider surrendering to the one who can save. You're going to see that Jesus is the only gate. And so by comparison, on the narrow road, only a few find it. On the broad road, many find it. On the narrow road, only a few find it. The crowd on the narrow road are actually a despised minority movement. They're journeying a path less traveled. Only a few would enter by the narrow gate. And only those few will have known all too well ridicule by friend or by foe. Maybe, maybe that's you. You know the ridicule of your friends. You know the ridicule of your enemies. Maybe you know the ridicule of your colleagues. This is a crowd um, who have chosen to take Jesus at his word and taken up their cross to follow him. This is the crowd who are... Um, who are blessed when they're persecuted. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those in the narrow road are authentic followers of Jesus. They are those who, who embrace the weight of loss in this world for the sake of greater in the world to come. They take on that same attitude that Paul has in Philippians 3. So you've got the two crowds. You have two destinations as well. Jesus says there's two destinations it's not saying there's only one destination and everybody will get to it. There's two destinations, heaven and hell. Jesus warns his disciples that the broad road leads to destruction. It's a one-way ticket to hell with no returns, no refunds, no second chances and no hope. And sure, there are well-meaning Christians on either side of the hell debate. And regardless of your view of hell, whether it's total annihilation or whether it's a, a conscious eternal torment, there's room for discussion there, sure, but there's no room for difference of opinion for the certainty and the reality of hell in that it is total and final separation from God. So on, on the path that leads to destruction, the closest thing uh, to those who are on it that will get to heaven will be their limited time on earth. So on those who are on that path to destruction, the closest thing they've ever experienced to heaven or God is perhaps the, the, the Christian they go to work with. It's perhaps their Christian friend. All access to God is destroyed in hell. There's no repentance. There's no reprieve. There's no hope. There's no God. There's no Christ. In essence, the broad road is a temporary pleasure. It's a fleeting moment with no good ending. For a person on this path, the best is now and the worst is yet to come. And the destination that leads to life is a narrow road and only a few find it, Jesus says. The difficult road, the narrow road, leads to eternal life, the promised redemption for all of God's people. In fact, the worst is now and the best is yet to come. Hence why Jesus is saying, guys, don't store up your treasures on earth. Don't be so consumed by gathering what you can in the here and now. Live in life of eternity. Live in light of eternity. And John pictures us so incredibly well in Revelation 21. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus gives John a revelation of, of what is to come. And John says these words, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people 
and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is what the follower of Jesus on the narrow road, on the hard road, has to look forward to. Maybe you're struggling right now. I would encourage you to take, take comfort in these words. Not my words, but the words from Revelation. So we've seen in Jesus' own words the offering of two ways with two crowds leading to two destinations, and these are through two gates. The gate leading to the broad road is wide. It's easy to get. There's no limit on luggage. There's no questions asked. You'll have to leave absolutely nothing behind, and there's certainly plenty of room for others. But the gate leading to the narrow, or the hard road is narrow. It's easy to miss. You, you, you don't stumble across it by accident, and baggage is absolutely left behind. It's like a turnpike gate. I don't know if you've been to a stadium, it's like a turnpike gate. You cannot take anyone with. No matter how hard you try, you cannot get to in the turnpike gate. You can't take anyone with. But it has to be entered by each individual alone, and you have to actively enter into it. Look with me at these words of Jesus in John chapter 10. Jesus, therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Amen. They will come, they will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is making an exclusive claim that he is the gate. The access to God can only come through him. So to, to choose to go down this narrow path means going through him, means going through in Jesus. He is the means by which we can get to God. This exclusive statement denies any other religion or practice the means by which we can get access to God. He says elsewhere, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to eternal life, guys. And in life and in all fullness, we're told. It's neither the easy way or the, or the popular way. And it's not that God wanted to make it hard for us, but, but because Jesus had to become an atoning sacrifice for us, taking our punishment upon himself. Why? So that we might receive his righteousness. He became my sin. He became Matthew's sin that Matthew might inherit his standing before the Father. The barrier between you and God is our sin. Sin and Eden broke the relationship, yet Jesus' sacrifice creates a way to bridge the gap and create a relationship with God. Church, for Jesus to be your good shepherd, he first needs to be your gate. And Jesus is saying these words, enter through the narrow gate. He's given a command. It's something we're due. It's, it's, it's not a gate we're born into, but it's a lifelong obedience in the same direction through Jesus. And as Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling his followers to make the hard choice. Why? Because false prophets, wolves and sheep's clothing will come in and they'll cut in and they will lead you to destruction. I want to show you a few ways how. False prophets distort the way. They distort the way. Some are harder to identify than others. And, and this is a problem. The wolf and the sheep's clothing looks like a sheep. 
It walks like a sheep, but is anything but a sheep. You know, Francis Chan tells a story years ago of, of a guy in his church who sat under his teaching for 15 years. And he came up to him one day and said, what you're saying is so radical. But what about this middle ground for people like me? And that, that, this hit Francis like a ton of bricks. The people like me were, were those content to keep Jesus to the Sunday service, keep Jesus to the spare will in times of need, uh, the, the God they believed in, but they didn't believe on. An accessory to life, a plug-in, if you will. I'd encourage you, church, read Jeremiah 28 this week and look at the prophet Hananiah, who proved to be false by his fruit. But allow chapter 28 to put our favorite Jeremiah chapter 29 into context. You can see the false prophet by their fruit. And so slipping into compromise creates this third way. And there'll be those that'll peddle some half-truths, making the gospel more palatable, more easier to get, less demanding. And, and not just selling short the beauty of the gospel of grace, but setting up those who receive it for a massive shock that when they come up against the world, the flesh and the devil, they don't know what's hit them because the Christian life was never meant to be this way. Church, there is no half in and half out with Jesus. It's either all or it's nothing, as his words to his disciples on the Mount attest. And so secondly, they deceive the crowd. The, the deep danger that Jesus warns his followers of uh, are the wolves in sheep's clothing. Why? Because the fruit of those will pollute those around them and will create ungodly fruit in their lives and in the life of the church. The problem Jesus alludes to is not that just that the wolves are hungry, but they're disguised as sheep. They'll come with the right things. They'll sound godly. They'll have the appearance of holiness. They'll gain a following. Their true nature isn't actually discerned until it's too late and the damage is done. You know, they don't come on the scene announcing themselves as purveyors of lies, but rather they come across as innocent. They come across as claiming to teach the truth, but they're just translating it to the modern mind. It's often a slow fade, beginning with a, a wrong thinking about God and a wrong thinking about humanity, which then spirals into heresy. You know, it's, it's easy to only see the fleece and miss the wolf. Beware, Jesus says. Keep your critical faculties alert as per last week's talk. It's important that each of us discern and are not led astray. And so in deceiving the crowd, the false prophet swims with the cultural current. Scripture can then be interpreted through a lens of whatever is popular in the culture at the time. And then thirdly, they, they dismantle the destinations. The way that they attack and they, they tear apart the flock is by speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. They twist the Bible. They manipulate spiritual teachings to sound like they're from God. But really, they draw disciples away from Christ and toward themselves. And, you know, church, they might even sincerely believe that what they're teaching is from God. And they probably do most of the time. But the message they run with isn't from God, but it's fabricated in their own minds. You know, a popular teaching that's propagated by the church in Rome is the idea of purgatory. It's a doctrine where people place confidence in as a way of dealing with guilt. It's being a place or a condition of temporal punishment for a Christian after death. So a place of temporal punishment after death. The punishment and the purification process in purgatory is set to purge away certain sins that still require cleansing. So if you weren't good enough for heaven, the first time you go to purgatory so you can get your sins purged so you can get to heaven. The problem with this 
is that it undermines Jesus' full and once for all atonement on the cross. And, and not only to, to reference the church in Rome, a, a popular manipulated teaching that's creeping into reformed churches is the idea that er, everyone gets to heaven eventually, if, even if not initially. It's the same fallacy, but it's wrapped up differently. Where one by one, the hard sayings in the Bible are dismantled and the narrow road that Jesus speaks of becomes an M50, three lanes wide. It's an incredibly appealing message. Our itching ears want it to be true, but it goes directly against the authority of scripture. And ironically, it leads us down the broad road that Jesus says ends in destruction. And church, the warnings, these warnings ought not to frighten you, but it, it ought to give you a cause to run to Christ, to run to the one who can rescue, run to the strong tower or shelter or hiding place. The narrow and hard road is both narrow and hard because of the cost of traveling down it. When you enter the gate via Christ, when you come into a relationship with Jesus, he accepts you as you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. You have been saved by grace through faith. And church, know this today, that grace is a free gift, but it will cost you everything. The things you hold dear, Jesus says, hold me dearer. The things you value, Jesus says, must come second. The successes and the riches of this life, well, Jesus says you must be prepared to give them up. You know, following Jesus in the 21st century Dublin is not easy. There's no hiding it. I pull no punches. The, the pull of the world, the flesh and the devil are, are hard enough but we do have grace for the journey. We have an advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus has gifted us to lead us to the Father, to illuminate the way. And that is he that makes it possible for us to give our yes to God. You know, only an hour ago, I was sitting watching a football match and I overheard in the other room, uh, my wife, Emma and, and Andrew, uh, who's in his house teaching the kids and they were teaching the kids a Bible verse about the Holy Spirit being their helper. And it's the Holy Spirit that can actually help us give our yes to Jesus. And so church, in following Jesus, we're saying yes, potentially to a narrow gate of volatility. I wonder what this narrow gate looks like for you, but potentially a narrow gate of volatility. To one who wanted to follow him, Jesus says, foxes of dens and birds of nests, but the son of man is nowhere to lay his head. To follow Christ, we must be willing <clears throat> to accept a certain amount of volatility in our lives. Knowing that we will remain living in the world without being part of the world. Sure, we're in it, but we're not actually part of it. We're radically engaged, but we're radically distinct. And there's a tension that we need to hold there. And that could mean a, a lifetime, maybe a lifestyle, or even a seasons of volatility. There's a narrow gate of priority. To another, Jesus says, follow me. And the person responded with, first, let me bury my father. To which Jesus replied, let the dead bury the dead. Jesus was telling the guy that his calling was infinitely more important. The same is true for us. We can't dedicate ourselves to follow Christ if we keep putting vague, open-ended priorities in front of our calling. And thirdly, the, the narrow gate of commitment. And so to a third, straight away, Jesus says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back, back is fit for the kingdom of God. To anybody who's not a farmer, this sounds so strange. 
But when, when plowing, the farmer fixes his eyes on a marker so that he will plow straight furrows. Nowadays, they've got GPSs, and so the GPS sets it, but the GPS is fixed upon something. It's fixed upon a marker. Church, we must continue to keep our eyes on the goal, seeking first the kingdom of God and Jesus' righteousness in our lives, contented that he will look after every other earthly need. The gift of grace is free, but it will cost a lot. And so Christ City Church, in your discernment, where will you turn? Where will you turn? Will it be the, the Broadway, uh, distorted by the middle road of comfort and compromise, which boasts the majority crowd uh, following the latest fad, taking the chance on purgatory, perhaps, in the hope of heaven? Or will you put your trust in Jesus, the true gate, counting the cost with the surety of inheriting eternal life, even though that may mean for you experiencing levels of volatility or detachment from the world. Why? Because you prioritize the kingdom of heaven over the kingdom of self. And laying hold of a commitment to keep your gaze upon Christ no matter the cost. So to close, the Sermon on the Mount has, has lots of comforts, but it's got lots of troublesome words as well. In this world, Many gates and paths to God are presented, but in the kingdom of God, there is no middle ground. With Jesus, there is no neutrality. He is the only way. So church, God's free gift of grace extended toward you at the cross is indeed free to receive, but in receiving it, it will cost you everything. I'd encourage you just to close your eyes for a moment as I pray, and then Leanne's gonna come and sing this next song. If uh, if God speaks to you or if you, you're challenged or troubled or encouraged by any of these, please feel free to reach out. Jesus, I, um, I, I thank you for your word. And as troublesome and as difficult as some of these words are, I greatly value it. I greatly value that there is no neutrality, that there is no middle ground. I thank you, Jesus, that your, your death on that cross was not impartial. I thank you, Jesus, that your death on the cross did not just save the elites. It did not just save the poor. It did not just save a particular type of people. But it actually gave every single one of us access to you. And Jesus, for those who follow you, who love you, who are authentic followers of, of you, I pray you would give grace and give strength for the road ahead. And for those who don't yet follow you, those who are challenged, those who are on the broad road, Jesus, I pray that you would reveal the beauty of who you are and what you've done for them. And also re reveal the danger of what is to come. I thank you, Jesus, that it is not in your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, Jesus, I pray that, that we would be a church and a people who open up our hands to receive absolutely everybody in the same way that you did. So, Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. We glorify you and we worship you today. In your name. Amen.